Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. So please welcome back Father Randy Sly. Well, good evening again. And uh, it is a delight to be here for week three of our second series on the kingdom of the cults. And, um, ah, there we go. There we are. And uh, one of the things that has uh, been a delight for me is not just being able to present, but then afterward to get some other information from those of you who have been a part of this. And we could almost do another whole series called uh, like Freemasonry, the rest of the story, because I'm getting a lot more additional information from other sources. It's amazing what, what is going on here. Now, I've, I've been a student of the cult since the mid-70s when I entered ministry, uh, both in seminary and past seminary. And obviously, and we've kind of experienced this, <clears throat> at least especially with one group, that there are many cults that are extremely flawed. But there are, there are other groups that are very attractive and, and very, um, uh, they just have a, a sense about them that can draw people in very beautifully. And I think that in many ways what we're talking about tonight with the Baha'i faith is a very beautiful faith in terms of its presentation and one that can draw a lot of people in, especially if you are uninformed or ill-formed in your Catholic faith or in your Christian faith if you happen to be a Protestant. Now tonight, uh, as a part of the presentation, I have two others that are going to be presenting. Alan Cook is a good friend of mine from Our Lady of Hope Parish. And Alan had an opportunity to spend how many sessions? Was it six, six sessions with uh, leaders of the Baha'i uh, Center uh, up there uh, near us in Sterling and talking about uh, the Catholic faith and the Baha'i faith. And so he's going to be able to bring an interesting um, apologetic dimension tonight. Sandy Greeley came out of the Baha'i faith, and so she's going to share our, her testimony with us as well. So it's going to be a very interesting evening. I would say this regarding any of the cults that we have studied or any other religions that you know, that the basic question that always has to be posed is the one that our Lord used with his disciples when he said to them, who do you say that I am? That question settles so much in terms of the rule of faith and our understanding and belief. Now, we, every week, the last two weeks and tonight, I want to again start with a scripture from Galatians chapter 1. If you would turn to Galatians 1, just as a reminder from St. Paul. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. St. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you've received, let him be accursed. Now tonight, we are going to be talking about the Baha'i faith. Now, Baha'i is an adjective. It means glory or splendor. It is not a noun that describes, it's not the name of the faith. It can describe as an adjective the faith, calling it the Baha'i faith, or a follower is called a Baha'i. And what Baha'i really means when used in the nominative form is a follower of the glory. And so that is basically what we're talking about. Now, three of the main symbols that you would see uh, when you're walking uh, with those of the Baha'i faith, the first is called on the left, is the greatest name. Now, I want to just offer this once as an apology for the entire presentation. I may really goof up these names, and Sandy and uh, Alan may even do a much better job, I'm sure, than I can in terms of making some of these pronunciations. So I'm just a hick sometimes. So if I mispronounce some of these uh, names that are in Farsi and Arabic, please forgive me, but that, that's just kind of where we are. But the first one, the greatest name, Ya Abba, and that is meaning the O Glory of the All-Glorious, and this is displayed in Baha'i homes and also in places of Baha'i activity. The one in the middle is the ringstone, not the ringtone, like on your phone, but the ringstone. And this is a visual reminder of God's purpose for man. And you'll notice that it's got several different parts of the symbol. This was, in fact, uh, created by the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, Abdul Baha. And in the ringstone, we have a top horizontal bar, and that is the world of God, the creator. The middle bar is the world of the manifestations, which are the divine messengers. The, then the bottom bar is the world of man. So we have all three of these bars then linked with a vertical line, which, again, these are the divine messengers that are connecting all three of these different realities. And then we have the two five-pointed stars that represent the two... Uh, basic divine messengers. The one on the left is called the Bab, and we'll talk about that in a second. And the other one is Baha'u'llah, who is the founder of Baha'i. And um, so that is the, the middle symbol. The one on the right, the nine-pointed star, is the official symbol of Baha the Baha'i faith. And basically the number nine uh, is uh, the word Baha. And so the nine-pointed star is what they use to represent uh, the Baha'i faith. Well, how did it begin? Well, it was founded out of another group called Babism. And Babism is a 19th century messianic movement that was started in Iran, and it was out of Islam. So again, the Baha'i faith and Babism have come out of Islam. It was started by Muhammad Sirazi, who was known as the Bab, and um, um, he basically started a religion that kind of uh, 
was, for him at least, a heightened form of Islam. They still had a devotion to Islam and Sharia law. But as the Bab, that meant that he was the gate, that there was a hidden imam, a hidden leader who was yet to be raised up and revealed. And later on, in fact, he revealed who the hidden imam was himself. Well, now, you can just imagine. Okay, here you have Babism, which was basically coming out as almost like a schismatic group among uh, the Muslims. And... Uh, they eventually got to the point where the Bab declared that they were breaking from Islam. Well, guess what happened to the Bab? He was executed in 1850. So he was born in 1819. He had a very short life of uh, 31 years. He was executed for basically uh, crimes against the nation of Islam. And then, well, I've got, I did it again. I didn't i got to watch my notes and start talking. <laughs> there it all is. They were eventually crushed in 18... Well, it actually, they lasted longer than 1850, and that kind of goes to the rest of the story. Baha'u'llah. And uh, sometimes you, I, I've heard it pronounced, I looked at YouTube, I've asked people, I've heard it Baha'u'llah, I've heard it Baha'u'llah, I've heard it Baha'u'llah. So one of those, I'm sure, is right. <laughs> But that is, that is him. He was born November 12, 1817 in Tehran. Uh, his name at birth was Hassan, or Hassan Ali. Hassan Ali. And he came from a very wealthy and noble family. They were all leaders in government. He led a very princely life. And uh, in 1835, he was married to Asiya Kanum. And uh, she was the daughter of a noble, nobleman, and uh, they had three children. Uh, his whole focus was care of the poor, which went against everything that his family stood for. He, was, he had the, the gates of government open to him for work. Instead, he decided to care for the poor through philanthropic enterprises and just his own, his own care. And they called him the father of the poor. Well, in 1844, he publicly became an advocate for Babism. So this was six years prior to the execution of the Bab. And he came out and spoke in favor of Babism. And obviously, at the time of the execution of the Bab, he was also arrested and imprisoned. They wanted to give him the sentence of death, but because he was wealthy and he came from a prominent family, because of their intervention and also some of the Western embassies also got involved, they pleaded with the government not to uh, execute him, so instead they put him in a prison called the Black Pit, assuming that that would be a place where he would die anyway. Well, he spent four months in the Black Pit, and this is where he received his first revelation concerning this new faith. In fact, this is what he writes. He said, I was but a man like others asleep upon my couch when, lo, the breezes of the all-glorious were wafted over me and taught me the knowledge of all that hath been. He then wrote, This thing is not from me, but from the one who is almighty and all-knowing. And he bade me lift up my voice between earth and heaven. After his imprisonment in those four months, he was banished from his native land, and it began 40 years of exile and, uh, after his imprisonment. 
He went to Baghdad for a period of time. He went into the mountainous wilderness of Kurdistan. He was alone there for a couple of years. And then in 1856, he came back to Baghdad and renewed his leadership of the, of the Babis that were there in the area. And that led to an announcement in April of 1863. And this is where he met on the banks of the Tigris River with, the, with the, uh, his companions from Babism. And there he revealed to them that he was the promised one that the Bab had been speaking about. That his name meant the glory of God. And his mission was to bring about the spiritual rebirth and the unity of all mankind. And he was uh, the one that was to proclaim the message of our loving creator. He was the divine messenger that was sent. And there were multiple divine messengers that were a part of this journey, and he was the latest in the line. The others, Abraham, Moses, Buddha, Krishna, Zoroaster, Christ, and Muhammad, and actually the Bab as well. These were the divine messengers, each one bringing a slice of revelation at their point in history. And he was the latest, therefore he was the one that should be followed, kind of the latest and greatest. His journey after the Black Pit, as you can see, he, he journeyed all around the Ottoman Empire, down across the Mediterranean Sea into Egypt, and in his exile... No, maybe this will, we'll, we'll see if this continues to work. Anyway, the travels went on uh, to where he finally ended up, to the location where he would spend the rest of his life. So he arrived in Accra, uh, in northern Israel. And there is where he would do the most of his work. And this is where he would establish his headquarters. Now, Accra, at that point, this is now modern-day Haifa, Accra was a, a place where they sent all the murderers, all the thugs, all the filth of humanity were sent there. It was a filthy place. They used to talk about the fact that the air was so foul in this walled city that when a bird would fly over the top of it, it would drop dead from the sky. And that's where he spent 24 years of his life. He died on May 29th, 1892. Now, one of the things that, that happened, though, prior to his death is that he gained influence in this area with all of these vile people and everything, and, and he and his followers were seen as destitute and defiled heretics. <laughs> if you can imagine murderers and thugs calling you defiled heretics, you know. But anyway, he gained a following out of all of those people with his teachings to the point where they invited him to move into an abandoned mansion just outside of the city. So he actually ended up in a fairly nice residence for a good deal of his life. Well, after his passing, his oldest son, Abdu'l-Bahá, became his successor. Born in 1844, he then became the head of the Baha'i faith, the followers of his dad, Baha'u'llah. And as the successor, he was called the center of the covenant. We'll talk about the covenant in just a second. But the center of the covenant. 
And he was the authorized interpreter of his father's writings. And so everything that had been written down, he was the one that was authorized to interpret what his father had been saying. And he was also given as the perfect example of the Baha'i life, that his life was one that could be followed. Now, you see a picture of the young Abdu'l-Baha and the old Abdu'l-Baha. Interestingly, by the time he was 64 years of age, he had spent 40 years in prison. So just after his appointment, he was imprisoned. But following, uh, when he was finally let go by the Turks, um, he lived a fairly nice life with his family at that point and really became the one that expanded the Baha'i faith beyond... Um, uh, Akra and beyond the followers of Babism that had come into the Baha'i faith. He went all around Europe and in fact in 1912 he did a nine-month tour of the United States and he passed away November 28, 1921 in Haifa. Well his successor was his grandson and the great-grandson of Baha'u'llah, his name was Shoki Effendi. He was born in 1896 and died in 1957. And he was known as the guardian of the Baha'i faith. Again, as the eldest grandson and the great-grandson, he was the last in the line of hereditary leaders for the Baha'i faith. But again, his voice spoke with authority in terms of interpreting his grandfather's and his great-grandfather's teachings. Well, what were the teachings? What are the sacred texts that are found in uh, the Baha'i faith? And by the way, isn't it interesting, just to go back to uh, Shoghi Effendi, is that since 1957 there has not been one specific leader of the Baha'i faith. They are led, I believe, by the um, Universal House of Justice in Haifa. Nine people, again, for the nine the nine points on the star. So anyway, what are the sacred texts? Well, these are the writings of the Bab, to begin with. Also, Baha'u'llah, Abdu'l-Baha, Shoghi Effendi, the Universal House of Justice, particularly in terms of authoritative legislation and elucidation of the orders and administration of the Baha'i faith. Not so much in the divine teaching, but in the administration and everyday guidance for the Baha'i faith. And also, the authenticated talks of Abdu'l-Baha, which there are many. In addition, we have the key writings of Buha'u'llah, which is, again, these are the most sacred texts. The first is the Kitab-i-Aqdas, which is the most holy book. And this is where we see the book of the laws of the Baha'i faith and the understanding of, of what is to be believed in the Baha'i faith. There is also the Kitabi Ikan, which is the book of certitude. And this is the foundation uh, document, again, of much of their belief system. There's another one called the Gems of the Divine Mysteries, which includes other doctrinal works. Well, in addition, there are mystical books that were written by Baha'u'llah, one was called the Seven Valleys, and it was, uh, it's considered his, his greatest mystical composition. It's basically in the style of a Muslim poet. And again, it talks about a soul's journey toward God. 
And then another one he wrote called The Four Valleys. And then he wrote a final one called The Hidden Words, which is short passages, aphorisms, having to do with divine truth. Well, what are the covenants of Baha'u'llah? What did he teach them? Well, he taught them that there were basically two covenants, a greater covenant and a lesser covenant. The greater covenant is the more enduring covenant. This is the big picture between God and man that comes through God's intervention in history every 1,000 years. It's a universal covenant. It's endless. Every 1,000 years, you could expect God to speak to a divine messenger. And usually it was at a time of turmoil or uncertainty in the world. Well, then there's the lesser covenant. This was basically the agreement that, that existed between God and his messenger and his followers. Basically, this is where Baha'u'llah fit into the picture. And this is where all of the other divine messengers they talk about fit into the pictures. Each one of them being unique in a religious dispensation for their particular time in history. And his, of course, revelation was then divinely ordained by God for this particular point in history. And so they declared that the administration of his teachings must be followed, that they had to actually follow after him. Now, in following after him, there were some schisms in the Baha'i faith, not very many, and they did not have any relative success. But anyone who was a part of a schism or who left was considered a covenant breaker and was essentially excommunicated and was normally shunned by the community. Well, quickly, what are, the, what are their real beliefs? Well, there's three core principles. The first is the unity of God. They are monotheists. Monotheists, specifically, one God, singular, uh, and there are no other gods. And this, uh, Alan will get into this in terms of looking at uh, the Christian view of the Trinity. Also, a unity of religion is a kind of a universalism where basically they see all religion in the world unified in one mass of which the Baha'i faith is the final interpreter and the final messenger of all of the different religions of the world. And also the unity of humanity, kind of a religious humanism where mankind is kind of this wonderful idealized lump of creation that God is bringing together. And in many ways, a lot of the things that we see in terms of, of the core principles are things which we in the Christian world and in the Catholic faith really can identify with regarding the unity of humanity, regarding the fact that, that the Christ was uh, the final revelation of truth for the world, these kinds of things. But one of the things that's interesting is that God was too great for humans to fully comprehend, again, something that we can agree with. But this is where it gets different, that human understanding must come through the different manifestations that take place in the world, of which Baha'u'llah was, at this point, the final manifestation. So while humanity will never have an opportunity to understand who God is, all they have to do is listen to the divine messenger. And... Uh, when I, when I was studying this, the thing that kept coming back to me is Hebrews chapter 1, 
where the writer of Hebrews says, In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. And where here in the Baha'i faith we have messengers being sent, we see and we know that God sent his son, not just a messenger, but he sent God the Son incarnate, to reveal the Logos, to reveal the Word of God to us, both in word and in action. Well, what does this look like? Well, the soul, very much like we would understand it, is made up of the mind, the will, and the heart. We retain our individuality and our consciousness after death. And we are able to associate with other souls after death by love. But in eternal life, eternal life really embarks us on a journey toward God where we go through different experiences and passages on our journey toward Him. Heaven, to the Baha'i faith, is progress on that journey. Hell is where we forget to develop or we fail to develop and we're just kind of uh, not making forward progress in our journey. But the overall goal is spiritual progress, to move closer and closer to God. Now, in this, good and evil relates to spiritual progress. Good, are the, anything that enhances our spiritual progress is good. Anything that hinders our progress is bad. They, for, uh, for instance, do not accept original sin. Man was created inherently good, and it's just a matter of continuing to get better. They uh, deny the existence of Satan. In fact, angels in the Baha'i faith are human beings who successively have severed ties with the world, with the self, and the desires of flesh. They are the ones who have fully processed in their journey toward God. So obviously, uh, again, it's a different understanding of eternity. And also, they prohibit ordination or establishment of clerics. Now, this is different from Islam in that there are no leaders in uh, the Baha'i faith. What do their principles look like in terms of everyday life? Well, there's an abandonment of all forms of prejudice. That is their desire, that there be no prejudice. The assurance to women of full equality of opportunity with men. The recognition of the unity and relativity of all religious truth. The elimination of extremes of poverty and wealth the realization of universal education, the responsibility of each person to independently search for truth, the establishment of a global, global commonwealth of nations. In other words, they do see the need for a one-world religion and a one-world world. Recognition of true religion in harmony with reason and the pursuit of scientific harmony, and no participation in partisan politics. They do not get it. I was going to ask you, Sandy, do they vote? Yes, they do. They vote, but they just aren't involved in the partisan part. Okay, very good. So these are, basic, these are the basic building blocks of everyday life for uh, the Baha'i faith. Now, what are their practices? And by the way, here are three buildings. The one on top is the um, Universal House of Justice found in Haifa, Israel. And this is kind of like their world headquarters. 
The one in the middle is the Baha'i Temple in Wilmette, Illinois. That's the Temple for America uh, in the suburbs of Chicago. And the one at the bottom left, many of you may recognize, and that is uh, the Baha'i Center in Northern Virginia up in Sterling. So what do they do? Well, prayer and meditation is an important part. And Baha'u'llah asked his followers for uh, basically one of, to pray one of three obligatory prayers that they would recite every day from memory. And these are said privately. And they basically talk about the relationship between God and humanity. He also recognized and urged his followers to spend time in meditation. And he said, Meditation profound, uh, meditate profoundly that the secret things unseen may be revealed to you, that you may inhale the sweetness of a spiritual and imperishable fragrance. And he didn't give them any specific ways to meditate. He just said to do it and find your own way of doing it. Another thing that is involved is called the Baha'i Fast, which is a practice of fasting as a discipline. Normally it takes place once a year for a 19-day period of time in the month of Allah. And that's from March 2 to March 20. That's just preceding the Baha'i New Year. Now what's interesting about a 19-day fast is that the Baha'i calendar is 19 months of 19 days. That's on the Baha'i calendar. That's how they, they look at a calendar. Um, it's a time of preparation and regeneration for the new year. The study circles are kind of like their RCIA. That's how they form their people. Um, and these study circles have a facilitator that is not there to teach, but merely to facilitate discussion. And they go through a sequence, sequence of seven books at one point called Reflections on the Life of the Spirit, dealing with prayer, life and death, development of the soul, etc., etc., they also have community worship. Now, community worship basically can be held in homes, uh, local community centers, and other public venues. Uh, at the heart of this is sharing of prayers and passages of Holy Scripture. Sometimes they use music or the arts, but there's no set form. Everyone can kind of do it, and anyone can hold a devotional meeting of community worship. They're very involved in social action, although they do not participate in partisan politics. They have two main prongs of events uh, or uh, of activity. One is grassroots community development projects. So they love to work within the local community as well as in diplomatic and public policy initiatives. Again, not getting involved in the partisan politics part, but in the public policy part. They have a lot of youth activity that takes place uh, in homes and centers. And one of their biggest is called the Junior Youth Spiritual Empowerment Program for children 11 to 14. And this is carried out in schools, community centers, and across the country. And it's basically training and hands-on uh, accompaniment by volunteers to help youth in an understanding of the Baha'i faith. So that basically is where we are in terms of kind of the background, the history, the belief, just kind of taking you right through the nuts and bolts of it. We're going to take just a moment to, uh, to stretch, and then we're going to come back for part two. Thank you very much, Father. Thank you. Anyways, please welcome uh, Mr. Alan Cook. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you will forgive me a moment of irony. When the Institute for Catholic Culture first issued their summer schedule, I noticed this talk about the Baha'i Faith. I planned to attend in order to acquire some background 
to help me write an article about the Baha'i faith. And here I am presenting part of it. <laughs> Our late Holy Father, Saint John Paul II, was fond of saying, in the designs of providence, there are no mere coincidences. On a Sunday in February of 2013, I was in the choir loft at Our Lady of Hope Parish in Potomac Falls. The choir had just participated in the 1030 Mass, and I was preparing to serve as cantor for the 1215 Mass. A gentleman, apparently of Middle Eastern origin, approached me and asked, Are you somebody important? <laughs> I had to smile at the question. A cantor has a liturgical role, but the Mass can certainly get along quite well without one. I responded, I am just a singer. Oh, you are a singer. I would like to discuss with you your perception of Jesus Christ. Well, I was pleased to be offered an opportunity to discuss my perception of Jesus Christ, but I had a sense that the gentleman in front of me might not be interested in the RCIA program. <laughs> Nevertheless, I believe that I must listen to other people if I want them to listen to me. So I agreed to meet after Mass. After a quick trip to my car to get my study Bible and catechism, I met this man and his companion in the parish conference room. He introduced himself. I will use a, a separate name, Dr. Habib, not his real name. He is a medical doctor, a native of Iran, an adherent of the Baha'i faith. Dr. Habib asked me to read from Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. To him who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone which no one knows except him who receives it. He asked me if I knew the meaning of the verse, specifically the reference to a new name. When I admitted I did not, he said, Christ's new name is Bahullah, the name of the founder of the Baha'i faith. Dr. Habib then presented a history of his faith. Father Sly gave a much more thorough history, but I would like to reiterate one key point from that presentation. Throughout history, God has revealed his will through a series of prophets. Abraham was a prophet. Krishna was a prophet. Moses was a prophet. The Buddha was a prophet. Zoroaster was a prophet. Jesus was a prophet. Mohammed was a prophet. Each prophet is believed to be a manifestation of God. Each had a revelation from God, and each had an era that lasted until the next manifestation in the form of the next prophet. I advised Dr. Habib that Christians believe Jesus was not merely a prophet, but the Son of God. The Word of the Father became flesh and dwelt among us, according to John chapter 1, verse 14. His response sounded a great deal like Islam. How can there be more than one God? No, there is only one God. One God. I attempted to explain the concept of the Trinity in light of sacred scripture, citing Matthew 28, verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I also used St. Patrick's famous analogy of the shamrock, three distinct leaves, but all part of the same plant. But my arguments were dismissed. After two hours, the discussion gradually came to an end, and I agreed to meet with him again. He told me we have much in common, and that I would make a wonderful Baha'i. <laughs> I assured him that he would make a wonderful Christian. He said, but I am a Christian. I love Jesus. He asked me to read a book entitled Preparing for Christ's New Name by Alex Gottdank, which I finished in time for our next meeting. In its format and style, this book reminded me of many Catholic conversion stories. The author, an evangelical Protestant who was well-educated in sacred scripture, had several conversations with someone who knew the scriptures even better and presented meanings in the texts that had been previously hidden from the author. This echoed Dr. Habib's assertion that the Christian scriptures were filled with prophecies of the coming of Bahu'llah. As I researched these prophecies, I concluded that the scriptures were being misinterpreted by the Baha'i to support the claims of their prophet. The book came to a predictable end. The author became emotionally disturbed at being shown that the Christian faith had been superseded by the revelations of Bahu'llah. He prayed to Jesus for guidance and came to the conclusion that Jesus was revealing to him that it was acceptable to become a Baha'i. In our next meeting, Dr. Habib used this quote from St. John's Gospel, chapter 14, verse 16. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He asked who this counselor might be. My response was, of course, the Holy Spirit. Dr. Habib said, no. The passage was one of many that foretold the coming of Bahu'llah. I countered by reading Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rushing of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And they appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Dr. Habib then drew an analogy to the light of the sun. The light emanates from the sun. It gives us light and warmth and life. But the light is not the sun itself. That was an illuminating insight, certainly, but also an example of his unwillingness to consider the meaning of the text and any interpretation other than his own. Throughout Christian history, the church has developed a tradition of critical examination of our faith. St. Paul makes this statement. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. In the second letter of Peter, chapter 1, verse 16, the prince of the apostles asserts, for we did not follow 
cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote many volumes examining the objections to the faith and believed that we need to know our opponents' arguments better than they do. In our own time, I can warmly recommend The Handbook of Christian Apologetics by Dr. Peter Kraft and Father Ronald Ticelli, S.J., initially published by InterVarsity Press and more recently reissued by Ignatius Press. Dr. Kraft and Father Ticelli examine the, obje the objections to the core beliefs of Christianity, the existence of God, the problem of evil, the divinity of Christ, the resurrection, and the importance of objective truth. If we are searchers of the truth, then we must examine our faith and our critics objectively. In our conversations, Dr. Habib was eager to criticize Christianity, but was unwilling to fairly examine the evidence in support of our beliefs. Another of our disagreements was about the divinity of Christ. I offered several quotations from St. John's Gospel to demonstrate the testimony of Scripture in support of this doctrine. John chapter 8, verses verse 58. Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. John 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 30. The Father and I are one. John chapter 14, verse 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Please remember what Father Sly said, that the Baha'i faith is an outgrowth of Islam. Muslims deny the divinity of Christ, and the Baha'i faith has adopted this belief. The website for the Baha'i in the United States, www.baha'i.us, makes this statement. Baha'i theology draws a distinction between the spirit of Christ, infinitely glorious, absolutely unique, and utterly indispensable as the only pathway to God, and the historical person of Jesus. It is important for Christians to explain that there is no distinction between Christ's spirit and his person, and to assert the centrality of the belief in Christ's divinity to Christianity. Another point of contention was the bodily resurrection of Jesus. One of our meetings was on the second Sunday of Easter, and I used that occasion as an opportunity to present our belief in the resurrection. Dr. Habib proposed the Baha'i belief that the resurrection was merely spiritual, that Christ's spirit ascended to the Father but that his body remains buried to this day. The body is dust. It must return to the dust. What does that remind us of? Ash Wednesday. We hear that as ashes are applied to our foreheads. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We believe that for ourselves, but our belief about the Son of God is quite different. I quoted St. Luke's Gospel, Chapter 24, verses 36 through 43. As they were saying this, Jesus himself stood among them. But they were startled and frightened and supposed 
that they had saw a spirit. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you questionings rise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see I have. And while they still disbelieved for joy and wondered, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Dr. Habib responded, Does it say that there was blood flowing through his veins? I am a medical doctor. A man is not alive unless he has blood flowing through his veins. At this point, I realized what I was up against. Dr. Habib was looking for loopholes and denying the clear meaning of the text. By the grace of God, I happened to have a copy of a DVD from Ignatius Press entitled, Did Jesus Really Rise from the Dead? <clears throat> this video examines many of the alternative explanations to the resurrection and refutes each one. I presented it to Dr. Habib as a gift. Did he actually watch it? Uh, I can only hope so. Other beliefs of the Baha'i faith include many of the points that Father Sly has already made. The complete equality of men and women. The lack of clergy, which Dr. Habib viewed as exclusionary. Abstaining from party politics. And the Baha'i calendar, 19 months of 19 days each. A major claim of the Baha'i faith is that the explosion or the flowering of science in the middle of the 19th century coincided with the life and revelations of Baha'u'llah. This is seen by the Baha'i as proof that Baha'u'llah was the manifestation of God and his revelations are true. There's a strong element of monism, the belief that all religions are essentially the same. The Baha'i website puts it this way, all of the great religious founders, the manifestations, have come from God and that all of the religious systems established by them are part of a single divine plan directed by God. They also profess that there is no conflict between religion and science, as they contend there is in Christianity. Can you guess what example is used to make this point? Galileo, of course. From an examination of the issues involved in this controversy, I believe the ICC may have an upcoming program on this topic. Keep your eyes open for that one. All right. Ultimately, what ended our conversations was a personal habit of my debating partner. Dr. Habib interrupted constantly. It became very clear that he was not interested in real dialogue but in thinly disguised monologue. Even when reading from a speech by Abdul Baha, the son and primary interpreter of Bahá'u'lláh, Dr. Habib would read a sentence, then offer a sentence or two of his own insights. After a sixth meeting filled with interruptions, assertions, and ramblings, I advised Dr. Habib that I would not meet with him again. He was aghast. But I love you! You will make a wonderful Baha'i. <laughs> I explained that he was unable to answer three critical teachings of Christianity. The divinity of Christ, his bodily resurrection, 
and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. I was also unwilling to continue if he was not interested in fairly considering my arguments. This is a common phenomenon. Critics and proselytizers are eager to challenge our beliefs, but less inclined to reconsider their own. When speaking with people of other faiths, we must be charitable. We, but we must not be afraid to profess our own faith and the joy that comes from it. A useful little book on this topic is How Not to Share Your Faith by Mark Brumley, published by Catholic Answers. I have no doubt about the personal courage of Dr. Habib, the persecutions he witnessed and endured in Iran, his escape and journey to the United States. I also need to acknowledge that walking into a Catholic church looking for converts <laughs> took a considerable amount of chutzpah. <laughs> As a native of Iran, he might not appreciate that term, but then again, the world headquarters of the Baha'i Faith is in Israel. I learned a fair amount about the Baha'i Faith, but I learned even more about how to defend the Christian faith. I hope I am better equipped for the task the next time I am called upon to give an account for the hope that lies within me. Thank you. Anyways, uh, Sandy is a, a dear friend and a founding member of the Institute and is a convert from the Behind the Catholic Church. Please give her a warm welcome. Thank you. Thank you. When Deacon Sabatino asked me to talk about my conversion from Baha'i to Catholicism, I was really taken aback because I hadn't thought about the Baha'i faith since I left it about six years ago. I was raised as a, an Episcopalian. I was a very devout churchgoer most of my adult life until I moved down from New York to Northern Virginia. I looked around at various Episcopal churches uh, in Herndon and Reston and Great Falls and McLean. I couldn't find a community that was like the church I left behind in Long Island. So I stopped going to church, basically. And then one day, I was walking my dogs in my neighborhood in Reston, and then I came across a neighboring woman, uh, an, a woman named Tamina Parsons, who had just lost her dog, and I had four Pekingese, and I needed to find a home for one of them. So I eventually offered her my dog, and we became friends, she took the dog, and she would invite me to dinner very often. And during one of the evenings there, I saw this plaque on the wall with a nine-pointed star. So I asked her what on earth that represented, and she said that's the symbol of the Baha'i faith. She was partially Persian. She'd been born and raised in the Baha'i faith, and she'd been very active in the Washington and Reston communities. So she'd been a lifelong Baha'i. And so uh, I said, what is Baha'i? Because I thought she was talking about Benai Brith or something. I had no idea. I'd never heard of Baha'i before. And so she started to explain to me that it was this uh, religion from Iran, from Persia, because she didn't really mention Iran. And um, she talked for several hours. She gave me a lot of books to read and sent me home. We had many meetings after that. She started taking me to their 19-day feast, which is their, like their church worship, which is, as you mentioned, prayers, but there's also a business aspect to it. And there was a social hour afterwards when everyone would stand around and chat with each other. And everyone was so welcoming and so kind and so embracing. And the Baha'i faith sounded so much like it was built on the Ten Commandments. Well, not the same language, of course, but the Baha'is were never to be violent, never to murder, 
never to be alcoholics, never to be promiscuous, to be honest and faithful and upright. And it was, sounded very appealing. So I joined the Baha'i Faith. Um, in about the 2005, Tamina Parsons' daughter moved her down to a nursing home in central Virginia, which was about a five-hour drive. So I didn't, I saw her maybe a couple of times more. We talked several times, but her physical and mental health declined, so we didn't have much communication. I also stopped being so such an active Baha'i. I mean, I'd been on the local spiritual assembly, I'd gone to all the meetings, I'd gone to retreats, but I really stopped being so involved in the community. In the spring of 2008, um, I went on a pilgrimage to Haifa. All Baha'is are required to go at least once in a lifetime because that's the center of the Baha'i faith. Um, and it's this it was uh, this building, all the buildings are on the slope of Mount Carmel. Of course, at the time, Mount Carmel meant nothing to me. I've been studying to be a Carmelite, so now, of course, I have a very different perspective on Mount Carmel. Um, you are required to meet the nine men in the Universal House of Justice. You're required to go to meetings. You're required to take a trip down to the town of Akka, or Accra, depending on how you spell it, which is on the border of Lebanon. And on the trip down there, I looked out the window on this bus. On the right-hand side of the road was a sign that said, Nazareth. And I thought at the time, that's where Jesus lived. And I think it was a subconscious urging to come back to Christianity. When I returned from this nine-day pilgrimage, um, my life really fell apart. I began to drink very heavily. I became very de despondent and depressed. And I hated my life. And I was very angry with God. So much so that my daughter did an intervention and made me pour out all my bottles of liquor because I was really drinking very heavily. Um, and I started reading this book, A Thread of Grace. And it is, although it's purportedly a novel, is based on the actual life of Italian Catholics during the Second World War and how they, the, the priests and the religious and the lay people, saved so many Jews from persecutions from the Nazis who were in Italy. And I was so amazed because I knew nothing about Catholicism. I mean, as a Protestant, we never talked about it. And here I found this was a faith filled with people who were kind and loving and put their lives on the line to save other people from being persecuted and killed. And then a few weeks later, in September, or October, I guess, of that year, late in the afternoon, I had a physical therapy treatment with Jennifer Lewis, who was also very involved with the ICC when it first began. And during the treatment, she said to me, oh, I'm going on a trip to Israel for, with the Catholic group. And I said, just as casually, well, tell me about Catholicism. And the words she said next changed my life forever. And she told me later that she had prayed to the Holy Spirit to say the right words. And she said to me that the, 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 Christian, the Catholicism was a faith, the one true faith that God gave to mankind. And when she said that, I felt this sort of spiritual bolt of thunder and lightning, and it changed me forever. So when the session was over, I said, well, how can I find out more about Catholicism? And she said, well, call this guy Sabatino Carnazzo. <laughs> <laughs> so I called this guy Sabatino Carnazzo, and I introduced myself, and I said what I wanted to do. He was running the RCIA program at St. John the Beloved at the time. He was also starting this group called Institute of Catholic Culture. So he's, I think he thought I was kind of a loopy 
female clients. <laughs> Baha'i Baha'i was that. At any rate, so he signed me up for the RCIA classes. Jennifer Lewis also signed me up for her RCIA classes at St. Veronica. So I was going to two sessions weekly. And I started going to the Institute of Catholic Culture meetings. As you know, each session begins with a prayer. And the first session I went to began with the Lord's Prayer. And when I heard the words, Our Father who art in heaven, I burst into tears. So I knew I had come home. But I had another problem. I had to leave the Baha'i faith. As you heard, they sort of persecute people, or I thought they did, if you leave. So I had a, a, a woman cleric at the National Cathedral I had known, and I made an appointment with her, and I went and explained my situation. And I asked for some decent language, some diplomatic language to leave without being, you know, crass and horrible. So we sat and talked for a while, and she said, oh, you can come back to the Episcopal Church. So it's, I had already decided I wasn't going to do that. Um, but I wrote the letter to the Baha'is in the Western community, and I stopped going to all the meetings and the gatherings and the prayer <coughs> workshops. And I joined the, the church that following Easter, and I was the most amazing, the greatest, best decision of my entire life. But there's a footnote to this. My daughter called me a few weeks ago, and she'd been going through a trunk of family papers and said, guess what, Mom? And I said, what? She said, you were baptized a Catholic at the age of three months. And I never knew. I, I have the, the uh, baptismal certificates framed. It has my parents' signature on it. All my people I knew as, step, as uh, godparents. The priest's signature, Diocese of Los Angeles. And my parents never told me a word about it. And I think that's God's greatest sense of humor because I'm not a convert. I'm a cradle Catholic. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.